Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome to the second installment of Real Vision's groundbreaking series, How to Unfuck Your Future. In the first day, Raoul sets out his thesis for the series, which we're bringing to you in two parts. Week one looks at the major problems threatening our future. Week two, the solutions and how you can adapt your portfolio. Right now, Roger Hurst speaks to Dario Perkins, the managing director for Global Macro at TS Lombard. He believes we're in the process of leaving behind a regime that's been with us for the last 50 years and moving into something new. If investors don't adapt, they risk getting left behind. Dario Perkins, welcome to the series. Thank you. And um, I think one of the key things for all investors is understanding a market regime and a market structure, far more important than necessarily a trade idea because a market structure matters to everyone. In your recent writings, you've been talking about how we have probably left a market regime of old and we're transitioning to a new market regime and a new structure which needs investors to recalibrate the way they invest. Before we get on to the future, maybe you could just explain and sort of summarize the old market regime that we've, we're leaving or have left and what were the main sort of salient trade um, kind of ideas that we all clung on to in that before we then go and talk about the future. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you about the, the sort of framework that I used to think about this because I think in terms of these very long sort of 50-year super cycles, and those super cycles, super, super cycles which really drive the sort of macro environment, um, they're set by the balance of power in the economy, particularly the balance of power between labour and capital. So you have to think about the capitalist system as this sort of inherently unstable mechanism. And so we design these institutions and rules to try and manage that instability. And the sorts of institutions that we come up with depend on who's in charge, basically. So if you have a, 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 a situation where labour is dominant, you tend to focus on full employment and high wages and narrow inequality. When you have a system where capital is dominant, the focus is very much on low inflation, low interest rates, high asset values. And so we've had big shifts in this over time. So there's basically been three of these super cycles. So you have one super cycle that runs from sort of 1870, which is the sort of start of the capitalist system, runs up until the First World War, completely dominated by capital. So you have massive technological change, massive globalization, uh, workers get absolutely killed, labor is completely, uh, labor is completely annihilated, and capital is dominant. And then you get to the, the sort of end of the 1800s and that begins to break down. You start to get a political reaction to that. So you get the sort of beginning of populism, beginning of anti-globalization, beginning of protectionism. Then you have the two world wars and then you emerge from the second world war with, with labor completely dominant now. So we've completely changed. And then we have sort of 30 years, 40 years where labor is dominant and you end up with stagflation in the 70s. And so everything that's happened since the 1970s has been this reaction to that stagflation of the 1970s. And that's been a world in which capital has been completely dominant once again. And part of it is demographic. So the baby boomers basically had a midlife crisis and suddenly sort of turned to neoliberalism. And then we had this sort of attack on labor power. So we destroyed the trade unions. We set up independent central banks. We globalized, we opened up product markets, we financialized. And so everything that's happened since sort of 1980, so you had sort of Thatcherism in the UK, Reaganomics in the US, has just been this continuous breakdown of labor power. And then for a while, we sort of concealed this because it was this was leading to massive inequality. So wages became very stagnant. We had massive increases in inequality. We concealed this for a while with this big subprime debt bubble. And then that debt bubble burst in 2008. 
And so we were stuck with this sort of this sort of malignant economy, this sort of perma lukewarm economy. We had this terrible policy mix because the last sort of throes of neoliberalism was austerity and central banks couldn't offset that austerity. So we were stuck in this sort of nasty situation that was actually was quite similar to the one that we were in in the sort of end of the 1800s, because we'd gone back to a world where capital was completely dominant. It was globalization, it was technology, it was you know massive increases in the profit share, massive decline, decline in the wage share. And then before COVID, this system was beginning to break down. So we had Trump in the US, we had uh, we had sort of Brexit in the UK, we had anti-European you know, scepticism. So you could see it was beginning to change. We had sort of a move towards MMT and fiscal dominance and all of that stuff. And then COVID, followed by the war in Ukraine, have just completely supercharged that. So I think, you know, when we look back on the last two years, when we look back at COVID and Ukraine, we're going to see these as these sort of big historical events. And each of those turning points in that very long super cycle is sort of coincided with these big historic events. And I think that's what we're seeing again. And that that period, the one we're sort of leaving, it was epitomised by probably sort of two or three trades. You know, it was generally an equity bull market. Obviously, we had these um, significant moments and pullbacks, but ultimately it tended to be an ever-narrowing equity bull market. And obviously for a long time, it was a bond bull market, but that was the comfort blanket um, for um, for most investors. Is that was, was there any other elements of that regime that investors sort of held on to? Because presumably we're going to be talking about that regime also coming to an end, that investment regime. Yeah, so it was, you know, it was, it was fundamentally it was driven by a sort of secular disinflation trend. So we had interest rates coming lower and lower. We had this very long term uh, sort of secular bull market in bonds. And that really drove um, the way that other markets were performing too. So, you know, the big thing was obviously in sort of 60-40 portfolio because, you know, we were in a world where it was sort of continuous, continuously driven by demand shocks rather than supply shocks with this very sort of benign regime where there were no, no big nasty supply shocks. And so, you know, in that sort of world, bonds became this sort of perfect hedge for equities. So bonds were continuously sort of re-rated equities were continuously re-rated. And you had this beautiful correlation between bonds and equities, which just meant that you could create these sort of wonderful portfolios just with those two things. And then by the end of the, by the end of the sort of 2010s, this had driven, you know, this sort of big run in particular types of stocks. So you look at the 2010s, you get this sort of massive outperformance of growth versus value. You know, the big US tech, the fangs, and that's, you know, historically, that's incredibly unusual. You know, you can get data on this back to the 1920s. That sort of continuous outperformance of um, long duration, you know, tech and, and growth, you know, it, it only ever happened in that decade. You know, there's no other period where that's happened. And I think that was the nature of where we are. We had this horrible policy mix. We had the austerity. We had central banks sort of trying to offset and, and they couldn't. So you had perma zero interest rates. You had sort of continuous QE. And this just drove people into duration. So, you know, a very unusual sort of bizarro stock market that went with the sort of final, you know, when you, when you look back and you, you look at sort of negative interest rates, I mean, you know, that was a clue that something had gone sort of, you know, profoundly wrong with the macro regime. You know, it sort of told you that your policy mix globally was just completely bonkers. <laughs> and so, you know, we had negative interest rates and then we had a stock market that really reflected that sort of world in bonds. And, and I think that's gone. I think that's what's starting to break down. All of those trends are beginning to reverse. So then if we're kind of looking at this, this now being that point of transition, what are going to be the key features going forward? Is it that this is you know, this turmoil that we've sort of seen, even if we exclude the exogenous impact of the Ukraine war, but is it that we're now going into a world where inflation sets high? Is it into a world where we have to look at the equity market completely differently, change our views in the bond market. Maybe if you could just outline the, the sort of macro backdrop first, and then we'll look at maybe the investment implications after of what you think this new regime and market framework is going to be. Yeah, I mean, there's been a huge amount of noise. So we've been living in this sort of artificial fake business cycle. You know, for the last three years, investors have, you know, keep sending me emails saying, where are we in the cycle? And I keep saying to them, you know, this ain't a business cycle. You know, this is, this is just not a normal cycle. It was driven by lockdowns. 
and then sort of big rotations in the way people were spending, in behavior. None of this was a normal economic cycle. And then just as we were emerging from that, we had the war with, with Ukraine, in, in Ukraine. So, um, you know, it's caused these massive distortions in the economy. It pushed inflation to very, very high levels. I don't think anyone is talking about sort of persistent inflation at sort of 8, 10, 12 percent. Uh, so all of that stuff is going to unwind. But I think that when you look through that, you're going to say, well, what's fundamentally changed over the last three years? So I think one is that we have, um, you know, massive labor shortages that we didn't have before. Those naturally tilt the balance of power back towards labor. And we see that very clearly with wage trends, you know, and particularly in some sectors where older workers have dropped out of the labor force, getting these big increases in, in wages. The second one is, is globalization. You know, already we were beginning to see this sort of fragmentation of global supply chains. That's really been accelerated. You know, firstly, you have this sort of private incentive to do that because these supply chains have proved to be incredibly vulnerable, uh, you know, when, when stressed. And then you've had these big geopolitical shifts that sort of accelerated after Ukraine. So you have this move towards friendshoring and reshoring and a completely different role for governments in the economy. And so all of this sort of tilts the balance of power back towards uh, towards labor again. And that, you know, fundamentally changes the sort of macro environment we're in. So it's not I don't think it's about inflation being very, very high all the time, but it's about the prevailing tendency of inflation changing. So if you think back to the 2010s, we had a world where 2% inflation was basically a sort of ceiling. You know, central banks were always striving to get inflation up to 2%, and most of the time they were failing. I think we're looking at a world where that 2% becomes a sort of floor, or maybe even 3% is the floor. And so the whole bias of policy now shifts, because instead of always trying to get inflation higher, you've got central banks always trying to restrain inflation, always trying to get inflation down. That completely changes the relationship between central banks and financial markets. So we were always used to these central banks pursuing this sort of whatever it takes. You know, anything goes wrong in the financial sector, central banks immediately come in with QE and cutting interest rates. Well, this is a different sort of world. And I think investors have had to sort of learn that over the past 12 months where central banks have not been on their side. You know, central banks have actually been trying to squeeze the financial sector in a way that has been, you know, really bizarre to many investors. So it's not just, you know, we, we face sort of very high inflation all the time. I think we, we face a very different tendency in inflation. You know, it's sort of subtle and it's gentle. I do think inflation will be a lot more volatile than we've been used to. So that sort of great moderation that we had where inflation was very low, but also very stable, that's gone. You know, that was driven by super efficient supply chains. Well, those have gone. And it was driven by, you know, lack of nasty supply shocks. Well, I think that's changed too. You know, we're going to be in a world where we have to worry about deglobalization as a supply shock. We're going to be in a world where we have to worry about climate change. And it doesn't really matter what we do on climate change, because whatever we do, inflation is going to be become more volatile. You know, if we do nothing, we're going to get more extreme weather. We're going to get more sort of physical disruption to supply chains, more spikes in food and energy prices. If we try to transition more quickly to avoid that, we're going to create these sort of bottlenecks and you know pressures on metals and commodities and anything that we need to sort of green the economy. So I think we're in a world where inflation is, is much more volatile, probably higher on average, but just has a very different focus for policymakers. And with the transition that we've been seeing, what I found quite interesting is that yeah, if you go pre-COVID, there was this feeling that we were running into a dead-end street, i.e. debts were still piling up and we were only managing to scrape through because interest rates were pretty much at zero. But eventually it was going to lead to this massive reset and probably a default, etc. And then we have COVID, we now have a bit of inflation. And I think it's been quite a strange change because we've gone away from the world is going to end because we're going to implode with debt to, oh, no, we've got a little bit of inflation. Actually, we can get real growth coming and we can grow our way out of that. But surely if we get inflation with the level of the debt we've got, can we grow our way out of that without these levels of higher interest rates being really, really um, punitive because of the debt levels? Yeah, I think that people tend to look at this in a quite simple way. So they look at global debt metrics and they say, you know, this is now at record highs. So surely that means interest rates have to stay lower than they were in the past. 
Uh, and I think that's I, I think that's wrong because firstly, if you look at the composition of debt, most of that extra debt over the last decade has come from China. You know, the vast majority of it has come from China. Now, China's economy does seem to be broken. You know, I think we're we're seeing a very profound structural slowdown in China. But I think if you look at the, the sort of developed economies, you've basically had a decade of deleveraging. And that's one of the reasons that growth was so weak in the 2010s, because we had this sort of permanent balance sheet recession. And that was still continuing up to sort of 2017, 2018. So a big part of that last cycle was driven by that. Uh, and then you had sort of extra government debt. Well, you know, I, I don't think there's a sort of hard limit on government debt. I think ultimately what we're learning, and I, I think you know, financial markets are sort of discovering this at the moment, is that it isn't just the level of interest rates that matters. It's also the level, it's how, it's how quickly nominal incomes are growing as well. So you know, we always think about government debt in terms of R minus G, so the difference between interest rates and nominal growth. But you need to do that for the private sector too, because if you're in a situation where nominal wages are growing more quickly, and nominal profits are growing more quickly, which has definitely been the case for the last three years, and I think it's probably something that continues over the next sort of five, 10 years, then actually you can live with much higher levels of interest rates than people realise. So your equilibrium interest rate starts to go up in that environment. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, Central banks have introduced rate increases that nobody expected 12 months ago. And if you told people that they were going to do this, they would have said, well, that's immediately going to push us back into secular stagnation and some, some sort of debt trap. And it hasn't happened. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And in terms of, you, you talked about the um, this sort of shift in inflation, and, and people often think that, to get a real shift in, in inflation, to get properly sticky inflation, you need proper wage inflation. Now, wages in, in nominal terms have gone up. Um, in many senses, in, in real terms, they're still not quite there. There's this almost a feeling that we've got this incredibly tight labour market today, but not a very strong one because labour still doesn't have pricing power. Do you think labour will get pricing power? It's just that we're so early in the shift from the old to the new regime, it's just not kicked in yet. Or do you think that Labour will actually end up being on the back foot because of technological change? So Labour, as it wants to get its pricing power, has found that it's being crowded out by technology. And therefore, actually, the sort of high levels of recurringly sticky higher inflation never materialise. But at the same time, maybe the real wage growth that we really want also doesn't materialise. Well, I think real wages have, have declined you know, over the past sort of 12 months, two years mainly because of this massive sort of supply-induced transitory inflation and this big increase in, in profit margins. I think that's going to evaporate quite quickly. So I think inflation will come down quite quickly. And actually what we're seeing now is that workers all over the world are beginning to secure decent pay rises. It's been very gradual, but they're beginning to sort of, you know, claw back some of these losses in real incomes. So if that inf inflation that we have right now evaporates, but wages are growing quite quickly, real wages start to start to accelerate again. And that's pretty normal after these sort of dynamics. There's this big IMF study on wage price spirals showing that that's exactly the sort of dynamic that you get. It takes a while for workers to sort of claw back these gains. And then I think you have to you have to look at sort of labor markets everywhere. You know, we have these massive labor shortages. You can see that this is changing the balance of power in the economy, that we are seeing wage increases that nobody expected, you know, three years ago. Uh, you're looking at nominal wage gains of sort of five, six, seven percent. This is something that we haven't seen in decades. And then you sort of layer on this the fact that, you know, deglobalization has barely started. Now, if, as everybody agrees, deglobalization was this force that sort of killed worker power, destroyed the wage share. Uh, you know, led to sort of big increases in profits, big increases in inequality, then it seems natural that the reversal of that process will start to fade, start to fade there and reverse those processes. And then you think about, um, you know, uh, demographics. Now, 
there's always been this big debate about whether demographics is inflationary or deflationary. And there's lots of people that just point to Japan and say, well, that's where we're, that's where we're, we're going to end up. But actually, if you look at the way that demographics have, have sort of interacted with COVID, you know, we had a lot of older workers leaving the labor force. This has compounded those labor shortages. And so younger workers, particularly in those industries that were most affected, so things like transport and hospitality, they've been seeing sort of massive double digit wage increases, which are inflationary. So I think people are misunderstanding demographics as well and the, and the role that demographics will play in this as well. You know, demographics is not a deflationary force. In fact, if you look at the age profile of inflation, uh, it, basically you have inflation being created by very young populations and very old populations. And it's the middle age population that is sort of net deflationary. And so, you know, for the last sort of 30, 40 years, that super cycle, we had this world where all of the baby boomers were basically middle-aged. So they're all saving like mad. Well, now they're going to have to start to spend. So they're leaving the labor force, adding to the labor shortages, and they're now having to spend more than they earn, which is inflationary as well. And over the last basically 100 years, we've had these two very distinct periods of higher inflation caused by very, very different reasons. Obviously, the 1970s was one and um, the 1940s, early 50s, the other. But what everybody looks at and policymakers stare at is that both periods had these three spikes. They were rising spikes in the 70s. They were kind of alternately high and low spikes in the 40s and 50s. If wages come through now, are we going to go into another cycle of spike higher, drift away? Because obviously, if the spike higher causes a slowdown in growth, as we've seen before, and then it returns again? Or do you think this is going to be just a world where, as you said, the base level inflation is higher, but actually inflation itself is not quite so dramatic? Or as you also talked about, there is going to be this volatility of inflation. So we should be prepared, even though it might not materialise, we should be pre prepared for potentially ongoing spikes in inflation. Yeah, well, I think the 70s is is a potential end game for this, you know, as the balance of power shifts more and more to labor because of these big structural forces, then maybe that's where you end up. You know, that seems to be, you know, when you have a super cycle dominated by labor, that's what you seem to end up with, sort of stagflation. When you have a super cycle dominated by capital, you seem to end up with inequality. And then there's a political reaction to that. And then that pushes you back into the sort of labor dynamic. So I think that's an end game. But to me, at the moment, I think we're a long way from that. You know, the trade unions are gone. We still have very globalized markets. Uh, you, you can't just sort of jump back to the 1970s in one go. So that's going to be a sort of gradual process over time. So to me, this has always looked much more like the sort of 1940s and 1950s, where you get the volatility of inflation, but you don't get those sort of continuous wage price spirals. And I think, you know, I've done a, a lot of work sort of on that period just after the Second World War. I mean, to me, that is the sort of historical template for what we're going through. You know, you think of the nature of the inflation that we've had. You know, you come out of the out of the Second World War, you've got massive pent-up demand, you've got huge excess savings. You know, we'd had a period where the household savings rate in the US was sort of 25%, similar level in the UK. Only time that we've seen that is during World War II and during COVID. So you come out of it, you've got massive pent-up demand, you get these massive commodity price shocks. But then you have the situation where global supply chains just can't cope with the demand. So in the Second World War, it was all about the impact of the war. You know, you destroyed the transport system, you destroyed sort of uh, travel networks. Uh, this has been much more subtle, but, you know, it's that combination of pent up demand and supply side issues, which caused this massive spike in inflation. Now, I think that inflation probably, you know, comes off quite quickly, just as it did sort of 1946, 1947. I think the whole transitory narrative was probably much too optimistic about how quickly that would happen. There was sort of presumption that it would happen in sort of three, six months, whereas in the Second World War, it took sort of two years. And that's basically what we're seeing now. So I think it comes down. But I think the story is going to be continued volatility of inflation. So if it's not going to be COVID, it's going to be the Ukraine war, or it's going to be climate change, or it's going to be, you know, a series of negative supply shocks. And, you know, investors haven't been used to negative supply shocks. You know, it really surprised people last year when you had, you know, bonds and equities selling off at the same time. I mean, that is a characteristic of a supply shock because earnings go down and inflation goes higher. So growth gets weaker, inflation goes higher. That is a sort of stagflationary shock. 
and you know investors have not had to live with stagflationary shocks you know for a long time now you know the way i look at this new super cycle is not that we're going to have permanent stagflation like the 1970s but i think we'll have more periods like 2022 like the 1970s where stagflation is a problem and we saw that that absolutely killed financial markets because stagflation is really the absolutely worst outcome for financial markets you know the decline in in bonds and the decline in equities in total returns that we had last year that combination was the worst combination in 150 years and so one of the things that could supercharge this is that you know, that regime change is effectively going from, you know, you say capital and ultimately monetary and central banks behind it to one which is much more policy driven and therefore potential fiscal. And that fiscal is something which we've seen. Uh, you know, obviously, everybody went sort of mini MMT during COVID for obvious reasons. But nonetheless, it feels like the, the fiscal spigots have now been opened. And obviously, if you're looking for equality and having to do it through uh, fiscal expenditure, putting their hands into the majority is really where you get inflation from. It, it's, it seems that we're going to, you know, it seems that this period of potentially high volatility and in inflation is going to also equate to a, a period of high volatility, almost by definition, in, in macro. So GDP volatility will be higher. And um, and then obviously the financial markets behind it, rather than trending for 10 years and then having a, a sort of two-year denouement, it'll actually be maybe up, down, up, down every three years. How do you see this sort of um, this geopolitical but political fiscal regime change starting to actually transmit itself into um, the financial markets maybe over the next 10 years? You talked about volatility inflation, but let's just focus now on, on how that um, transmission mechanism works into the financial markets and, and effectively how we invest. Yeah, I mean, you know, people look at this fiscal regime and it sort of worries them, you know, particularly on, on the right, you know, that we're moving into this world of sort of endless deficits and endless debt. But actually, you know, the fiscal regime in the 2010s was pretty messed up. You know, we had sort of continuous austerity uh, and we had central banks trying to offset that. And the austerity was very, very powerful because those fiscal multipliers were really large. And monetary policy had become completely ineffective. You know, we couldn't cut interest rates any further because we were at the lower bound. And QE, as far as I can tell, did nothing for the real economy. So all we had was central banks sort of inflating asset prices and, and monetary policy feeding into that and not doing anything for the real economy. So as you said, I think we're in a world where fiscal policy is going to be much more activist than it was before. And we saw that with the energy crisis. You know, what was the first response of um, European governments was that everybody got a bailout. And it had to be everybody because the politics was sort of so toxic and so uh, unconnected that we couldn't agree on who should actually get the bailout. You know, there were people who needed uh, to have governments send them checks to help them pay their energy bills. And there were lots of people who didn't. But the easiest thing was just to send money to everybody effectively by capping, capping energy prices. So I think, you, you know, we've seen that sort of we saw that new appetite for fiscal policy during COVID. We saw it during the energy crisis. Uh, we're seeing it with defence spending. We're seeing a different role that governments want to play in the economy. So, you know, coming out of this sort of Cold War, or going into this Cold War, we have this appetite for sort of securing um, strategic commodities, you know, semiconductors. We have this appetite for defence spending. We have industrial policy, you know, for the first time since the Second World War. So governments are taking a very different approach. You know, that is the end of neoliberalism, you know, neoliberalism, neoliberalism which basically divide, defined that super cycle after 1980 has gone. And so what does that mean? Well, it means, firstly, it means that you're in this sort of secular bear market for bonds. So yields will trend higher, not massively. You know, I think it's going to be fairly gradual, but I think they move higher over time. And I think if you're in this world of, uh, uh, you know, of fiscal and monetary policy, sometimes working against each other, of having more supply shocks, then I think, you know, that inflation uncertainty means that the term premium has to widen. And so, again, you know, that, pu that pushes a sort of secular pressure on bonds. It pushes yields up over time. You know, that term premium is basically driven by two things. You know, and it, and it fell to very, very low levels. And the reason for that is, you know, number one, there was no uncertainty about inflation. Inflation was basically a flat line, at, you know, one and three quarter percent, so slightly below central banks' targets. But also because bonds had this perfect insurance property for equities, you paid an insurance premium for holding bonds, you know, because as a sort of investor constructing a portfolio, 
your your bonds became that sort of perfect hedge for your equity exposure. So you paid for having them. So the term premium went negative. Now, if we're in a world where inflation is much more volatile, we get more frequent supply shocks, where bonds and equities are more likely to be selling off at the same time, then that sort of insurance property of bonds is gone. So the term premium blows out. So I think that's a secular bear market for bonds. And for equities, it really changes what you have to do. Because in the 2010s, you basically just did one thing. You put your money into long duration US tech and fangs. And you watched them get continuously re-rated and you felt like a genius because, you know, you were buying the right part of the stock market. But as I said, you know, that is a really unusual environment. There is no other period in history where the equity market has behaved like that. And so I think we're looking at a world where as an equity investor, you don't want just exposure to long duration tech. You want exposure to the bits of the economy that you think are going to do well over the next sort of five, 10 years. So you're looking at areas like commodities, you're looking at, uh, you know, defense materials, you're looking at banks, you're looking at anything exposed to the sort of big growth drivers. So things like climate change, decarbonomics, you know, reconfiguration of supply chains, manufacturing. It's just a completely different world. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. When we talk about regime change and this change in the investment regime, um, changing from one regime to another, unfortunately, it's never smooth because you've got to shift your assets from one area to another. And, you know, as we've seen, I think equities versus GDP got it's got to record levels, and that's been generally with a relatively narrow selection of stock, particularly in the last decade. Do you see that this transition, can it be smooth? Because if you try and take a few billion out of even a very, very liquid market, theoretically liquid market, a few billion coming out at the margin can actually have quite dramatic consequences in the performance of the overall market and then overall valuations. Does this mean that we need to see effectively an equity bear market in order to reposition into this new regime? And do you therefore think that, you know, if we had such a fantastic time over the last 10 years with that narrow range of stocks going up, do we have to come down in order to then reset to a new regime? Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to sort of make that transition smoothly. Um, I guess that, you know, the last time we had a transition like this was was sort of after dot-com. So we'd had a period where, um, you know, you had this sort of very top-heavy US stock market driven by tech. And then uh, you had this sort of stock market collapse after sort of, you know, 2001, 2002. And then... um, Emerging from that, you had a very different type of stock market. So, you know, European, uh, US tech got continuously derated over years and other sectors started to outperform and different countries started to outperform. So you look at sort of post.com period, you've got European outperformance, massive European outperformance because of the banks. And you've got some EM outperformance because of the commodities. So, you know, it was very, very messy. During the messy period, everything went down, you know, all stocks went down. And then over time, this new cycle started to emerge and it had very different drivers. So I think that's the, that's the you know, that's probably how this is going to play out. Uh, and I think that central banks themselves have added to this volatility because, you know, I was making the comparison with the 1940s. Well, the big difference with the 1940s is that central banks were not allowed to raise interest rates after the Second World War. You know, it would have been unpatriotic. Now, these central banks, because they've got this sort of nightmare scenario of the 1970s, they've been raising interest rates very, very rapidly to try and kill this sort of ghost of the 1970s. And that's probably created even more volatility in the economy. So things like housing have got absolutely killed. Anything that is interest rate sensitive has got absolutely killed. And the chances are that they'll go too far because that seems to be the bias. They'll tighten too much. The labor market will start to crack, the economy will start to crack, and then they'll panic and cut interest rates again. But what I would say is that, you know, the the type of recession that you would need to restore balance to the labor market would have to be huge. And I just don't think there's any appetite for that. I think all of these central banks, you know, they talk a tough game. They talk about why they don't want the 1970s to come back. They're sort of channeling Paul Volcker. But, you know, Paul Volcker had a very different politics. You know, they had the sort of, we'd had 15 years of stagflation by the time Paul Volcker came on the scene. 
there was this big political shift, you know, which was neoliberalism, which was, you know, let's destroy that economy. Let's destroy the mixed economy. Let's destroy worker power. And so, you know, engineering a massive recession in the early 1980s was politically acceptable. That's just not the case today. As soon as the labour market starts to crack, these central banks will pivot hard, cut interest rates, and that will lock the inflation in, lock the uh, labour imbalances in, and it will preserve that longer term super cycle. And do you think that first um, that first move then is, you know, generally when you see that pivot, you see you'd expect to see bond yields fall, which is what we saw in the 1970s. We saw them you know, peak with CPI, then roll over. A lot of people are sort of saying, well, actually, therefore, don't you want to trade back into those duration stocks? Because if your Pavlovian response is yields down, is that tech stocks up? Again, do you think this is going to be very much more a, a period now where instead of being used to maybe a 10-year bull market within that, I think you talked about the Minsky moments always coming when you get that sudden pullback. We now reverse that, that actually we have more instability it's more trading and less investing because instead of having a 10-year run and a Minsky moment, we have constant volatility, constant trading in and out of themes. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely the case at the moment. I think we see huge volatility in the economy. We have this fake business cycle. We have the distortions from COVID, the distortions from Ukraine. We have central banks injecting their own volatility into this situation. You know, it's all incredibly noisy. You know, we're arguing about whether it's going to be a soft landing, a hard landing, a no landing. Nobody knows. You know, nobody can even put probabilities on it because we've never seen a situation like this before. And so that is incredibly messy. That's all about trading. And that sort of pendulum between inflation and recession is just swinging wildly from one month to the next, you know, as it has for the last three years. And, you know, in that in that three year period, if you look at sort of growth versus value, it's basically been, you know, the mirror image of interest rates you know wherever interest rates have gone uh, you've had big shifts in big rotations in and out of different sectors what i would say is that that's all noise and i think that noise probably ends sometime in the next sort of 18 months two years and then what we need to do is we need to look at this economy and say well how has it fundamentally changed you know what is different about this economy that's emerging and I think you know you can you can be bullish on bonds occasionally, you know, as people have done, uh, but it hasn't usually paid off for very long. You know, people have been desperate to get back into the bond market at every opportunity, and I think you know you, you almost take this back to the term premium because you know the term premium is still negative. You know, inflation expectations are still very low. You know, there is no regime change that is priced into to bond markets, and you see this you know in the psychology of the sort of bond balls on Twitter, you know, always desperate to get back in at the first opportunity and not miss, you know, interest rates going down. But I think, you know, it, it's sort of similar to the, the, the 80s, because in the 80s, you had this collapse in inflation and this collapse in inflation volatility, but people have been absolutely killed, you know, on bonds for such a long time that nobody wanted to get back into bonds. So the term premium was really sticky. And it took, you know, the best part of five, 10 years for investors to realise that actually they were now in a different world, that the regime had changed. And I think that's what we're seeing now still in bond markets, that bond investors don't realise that this is a very different world. So you can trade this, you know, you can jump in at opportunities, you know, central banks pivot, equities go up, you know, yields go down. But ultimately, when I think you're looking at the next sort of five, 10 years, you're looking at a very, very different environment. And I think, you know, real returns in bonds over the next five, 10 years are just going to be horrendous. And over time, bond investors will learn that and the term premium will widen and we'll be in a secular bear market. So, so in terms of sort of putting that into sort of context for, for viewers, obviously in the 1980s, what we saw was that even though inflation CPI dropped quite quickly at the beginning of the 80s, we saw um, those bond yields were significantly above CPI and only drifted down over the next 30 years. Right now, and very, I use it very crudely, and, you know, people go, you've got to use you know, forward measures of, of inflation for real yields. But CPI versus bond yields, we've seen the biggest spread between the two pretty much through history. Basically, is what you're saying here is that let's say inflation settles at, let's say, 4%. Bond yields should effectively go back above 4% to maybe 5 or 6%, let's say, in the 10-year space that premium being that 2% differential where you get more for your yields than there is inflation, so you get a real return. Yeah, well, I think what I'm saying is that, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of pivoting back towards recession. You know, central banks may cut interest rates at some point, but the low in yields is going to be higher than the previous low. 
and that's going to be a trend. You know, we're going to be in a trend of of higher lows and higher highs over the next 10 years. And over time, I think investors will realize that something fundamentally has shifted. And, you know, if you're thinking in terms of inflation volatility, well, the bond market is completely bought into the idea that all of the inflation is transitory. But what I'm saying is, yes, but we're going to have lots more periods of transitory inflation. And so if you invest in bonds over that time, those transitory inflation periods are going to absolutely kill you. And do you think that, you know, everyone loves to look in the rearview mirror and, you know, we saw yields sort of marching up into 1981 and Volcker and then marching down generally. And people now looking for yields to march back up or could they just reset into, let's say, a wide range of, let's call it 3%, take a 10-year potential in the US, 3% base and maybe an 8% peak or something like that and just be in that range for a while and rather than actually have to march higher and higher? They could do. I mean, I, I you know, when I've sort of set out sort of simulations for the next five, 10 years, I have this sort of very gradual trending higher. But I think you have to remember that we've already made, you know, quite a big move. You know, we've all, we jumped quite a long way in yields. So, you know, then we, if we have a recession and then, you know, there's always uncertainty about the strength of the recovery and all of that, you know, you could be sort of several years before you reach another new high in, in yields. So it could be quite a, a gradual process. But I think, you know, that sort of big super cycle move, I think we're, we've passed an inflection point, you know, and I think we're just in a, in a very different world there. And in terms of the, um, you know, looking at different regions, because we obviously got used, particularly in the last 10 years, to everything just being US outperforming. And now we're probably going to go into a world where there's going to be much more dispersion in performance, diversity and opportunity. But let's look at, for instance, um, emerging markets and we'll come on to commodities. As you mentioned, China's to the China today is very different, obviously, from the China in 2001, which was that massive um, change, not just at the margin, but right at the core of, of commodity demand. It feels like today when they inject credit, they're injecting credit to support um, a shift towards theoretical sustainability, a very difficult one. But if China is no longer the China of old, it's the China that wants sustainability, therefore less about commodity growth for building things and more about you know, commodities for maybe um, technology or green technologies. Without China, can emerging markets perform well? Because emerging markets in that sort of 20, 2001 to 2008 period, the outperformance there was largely on the coattails of China. Without China, is it going to be a case of you've got to pick your emerging markets? Because again, it's going to be about dispersion, diversity, and those that have an energy need are going to be struggling those that maybe don't might be the ones we want to look at, or do you see it being broad-based emerging markets? Yeah, I think you need to be discerning. So you're looking for emerging markets that benefit from the sort of themes that we've been talking about. So if you're you're thinking sort of you know friendshoring, you know, and you're sort of pivoting U.S. supply chains, you know, which are the countries in sort of South America that benefit from that? You know, places like Brazil see more obvious beneficiaries. And then, you know, in Asia, you're looking at sort of, you know, who benefits from China sort of changing its supply chains too, and so areas like Vietnam. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a subtle story. But I think you're right that, you know, Chinese demand has basically gone in, in the sense that, um, you know, I think we're having a very severe structural slowdown in China. Uh, I think, you know, those days of sort of six, seven, eight, nine percent growth, I think they've gone. And we're looking at something where growth is probably going to be, you know, five or below for the next decade. And so, you know, China basically drove the global cycle in the 2010s. You know, that world where you had deleveraging in the developed countries, you had austerity among governments in the developed countries, uh, there was no source of balance sheet apart from China. So, you know, China was basically running this sort of MMT style policy, these big policy swings, you know, on and off. And they were driving these mini cycles in, in global industrial production, global commodities, everything related to that. Now, I think that I think that world is gone, but I think that other parts of the world start to offset that. So, you know, I think we're going to see massive uh, increases in public investment, massive increases in private investment across the developed world, you know, climate change on its own is going to demand that. But then you're thinking about defence spending and reshoring and all of that. So I think we're just going to be in a world where, you know, investment spending is is much bigger and commodities are much more responsive to investment. You know, you look at the sort of commodity super cycles, they've basically been driven by, you know, global investment levels. And I think those investment levels are going up in, in a really big way over the next decade.
So I think net, you know, this is this is quite a favourable environment for emerging markets. You've also, I think, talked about that um, the, the previous regime was the intangibles and the future regime is the tangibles. So commodities obviously very much sensitive to that. Um, it's a bit of a consensus. Um, is there a risk that, that we kind of got ahead of ourselves? And in the short term, if we do have, you know, probably will get um, a, a, an over tightening from central bankers leading to whether it's a mild recession or whatever. Do you think that this is that, you know, if we get that pullback in a recession that we nearly always get in in things like commodities, that's the opportunity to get in for the long, long term? Or do you think that there will be sufficient investment over the next five years that this sort of the super cycle really is going to be supercharged early on where you've got the imbalance that we have today, but eventually balance will be restored by investment? Yeah, well, I think that we are sort of switching back to recession risk. And that's why, you know, everything's going the other way. You know, everything that I've said in terms of this super cycle thesis and, you know, how you want to be positioned over the next sort of five, 10 years is probably going to fail spectacularly over the next six months because we're in a sort of global slowdown. Central banks are tightening. Everything goes the other way. You know, your commodities go down, growth goes down, yields go down. <laughs> you know, all of these sort of dodgy stocks start to go up again. You know, this is not investment advice for the next sort of six, 12 months. It probably will be hopelessly wrong over that period. But I think, you know, what we're trying to do is look beyond all of this and say, well, how is the world going to be different? And so I think we're at the very early stages of that sort of super cycle. And with the onshoring that you talked about, does that give opportunities to, you know, manufacturing small caps in some of these regional hubs, which have been overlooked because everybody's outsourced everything to Asia, but now actually you you get, you know, as you say, value stocks, um, industrial stocks, but locally um, uh, lo located, obviously, um, manufacturing stocks. Do you think that these sort of small caps may be a, an opportunity for um, investors in this next cycle? Yeah, I mean, you know, I call this the, the tangible 20s, and it's anything that's exposed to sort of tangible assets. And that's why it's so different to the 2010s, because the 2010s was all about intangibles. It was, you know, we were in a zero interest rate environment. And so you were sort of reaching out, you know, there was this scarcity of growth and inflation. So you were reaching out into the future, you know, looking at companies that could promise, you know, returns way out into the future. And you didn't care how far into the future, because you were discounting them at this sort of zero interest rate. And now we're in a world where, you know, you want exposure to physical things, you know, you want exposure to tangibles. And so, you know, really, you need to sort of do a big study on, you know, deglobalization, identify the exact winners, you know, which of the, we're only just starting this process now, but you, you're sort of looking for which countries benefit, you know, how will these supply chains be configured? And then you sort of drill down into those stock markets and you try to identify the sectors, the industry, even the companies, that could benefit from that. But that's how investment is changing. You know, you didn't need to do any of this analysis, you know, in the 2010s. You know, I have, I have value investors that have just, you know, spent the 2010s absolutely depressed because they were seeing their sort of younger <laughs> colleagues, you know, coming up and just wanting to buy Tesla and making these huge returns. And they were sort of doing all this thoughtful analysis on sectors and industries and companies, and it wasn't paying off. Well, that's because, you know, in that environment, it was all about the discount rate, you know. And as somebody said to me right at the sort of peak of COVID, they said the stock market is not the economy. And that stock market wasn't the economy, didn't resemble the economy in any way. You know, it seemed bizarre to look back and see this massive rally in the stock market at a time when you had sort of depression levels of unemployment in the US and big worries about the credit cycle. But, you know, the stock market wasn't the economy. What I'm saying is that we're moving into a world where the stock market will start to resemble the economy a little bit more. And so that, you know, it's a return of macro investing. It's the return of, uh, you know, stock picking. It's the returns of, you know, lots of sort of forgotten arts that got, you know, completely destroyed over the past decade. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So it sounds like that 
therefore means that, again, very, very simplistically, but we're moving away from effectively a buy and hold type of scenario to maybe a, a buy and trade. Because you know, if you looked at the 1960s, you had these recurring, not just inflation, but recurring um, peaks and troughs in the equity market, but it didn't really go anywhere. If you traded it and you were good at trading it, you could capture the upside and the downside. But if you were unlucky enough to you know, buy near the first peak, you probably didn't actually see any returns for 10 or 15 years. Do you think that this is the sort of environment we're going into where that natural volatility of inflation creates a natural volatility of GDP, which creates a natural um, volatility of equity cycles that aren't just a, a long 10-year trend, but maybe you could have two or three peaks over a 10-year period. And therefore, people just have to be a little bit more nimble and maybe be a little bit more active in their own portfolio and, and, and you know, watching over them a lot more than just off it goes. And then 10 years later, I look in and I'm, I'm kind of rich. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see these sort of long uh, re-ratings in stocks that we had before, you know, the, the sort of long bull markets. But even in the 1970s or, you know, the 1950s, 40s, um, where you've had these sort of periods of high inflation, it's been very much about, you know, sectors. So there were some sectors, you know, or, or factors, you know, value. Value performed very well in the 1970s. Uh, it performed very well in the 1940s and 50s. You know, it tends to perform well when interest rates are higher, when inflation is higher, when you're in a more reflationary world. And I think that, you know, I, I, I'm not sort of massively bearish about what this means. You know, I, I think it's going to be more difficult to make returns because it was really easy to make returns before. But I don't think this is fundamentally a pessimistic outlook. You know, this isn't perma stagflation. This isn't perma 1970s. And actually, the economy that we had before was, you know, profoundly poor. You know, it was sort of continuously lukewarm, had massive inequality. There were lots of sort of toxic political trends that, you know, were related to inequality um, that would destabilize financial markets at some point if they just sort of continued. So you had to have a very myopic view to believe that that environment was actually good for financial markets. I think in this new world, we'll be pushing the economy harder. And sort of one of the big puzzles of the 2010s is, you know, why was productivity so bad? Well, productivity was so bad because there was no reason to invest. You know, you had lukewarm demand, uh, you had cheap workers, and you had low interest rates. So why did you invest? So, you know, one of the defining characteristics of that period was that technological diffusion completely slowed down. So we had these big superstar companies making these massive investments, getting these big productivity gains, sitting on huge amounts of cash. And then we had loads of small and medium-sized companies just dependent on cheap workers and cheap uh, and cheap borrowing. And I think when you start to push the economy harder, you start to get more investment. You know, if you've got labor shortages, companies are going to have to start to invest again. So we'll see faster technological diffusion and we'll get stronger productivity growth. And actually, real growth will be higher in this environment. Now, I don't see many people looking at the 2020s and saying growth is going to be higher. I think they're all sort of fixated on the negative problems associated with government debt and you know government intervention and, and all of that stuff, deglobalization. But I think you know there are some sort of silver linings in all of this. And with that um, that outlook, you you talked about you know obviously we can't hedge ourselves with bonds anymore. Is the hedge, therefore, is it, is it not so much that we have equities with a hedge of bonds, it's just that we have diversification? It sounds like buying volatility, you know, pure volatility, has more of a chance of working because you probably won't have these three-year periods where it does nothing. Is it, is it that now our portfolio just has to be a diversified portfolio with you know, a variety of different sectors and styles in equities, some commodities, probably some volatility or some kind of put protection already, but volatility across the assets? Um, maybe small caps rather than large caps, a bit of EM. Is that is that how you'd approach the next 10 years, that diversification? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, if you think about bonds, um, you, uh, you, you have periods where bonds do not provide the insurance, as I said, but that's not going to be all the time. You know, I still think most of the time the bond equity correlation will be negative. It's just that there'll be more frequent periods where it's positive. So what drives that correlation? Well, it's the nature of the inflation. So if you're in a world where you only ever have demand shocks, then inflation becomes pro-cyclical. And when inflation is pro-cyclical, your bond equity correlation is negative. If you're in a world where you have more supply shocks, during those supply shocks, inflation becomes counter-cyclical. So the bond equity correlation flips from negative to positive. That's what we had last year. That's what we had in the 1970s. 
So because I think we'll have more periods where you have supply shocks, negative supply shocks, the bond equity correlation on average will be weaker, but it won't be positive all the time. So you still have some insurance property in bonds. So you still want to have bonds you know, to play that sort of role in your portfolio. But you're looking for something else that can replace bonds. So the obvious thing in the 1970s was gold, because gold you know, had that perfect correlation with equities in the 1970s. So maybe gold starts to, starts to play that role again. But more than that, I think it's commodities in general. Because when you think about what's going to drive those supply shocks, it's going to be all about commodities. It's going to be climate change. It's going to be decarbonomics. It's going to be shifts in global supply chains. All of those things are going to drive commodities. So in those periods where you know bonds are not playing that role and bonds are actually adding to the risk of your portfolio and hurting your returns, at the same time, equities are doing the same thing, then I think commodities give you a degree of insurance against that. So as you said, you're looking at equities, you're thinking about a different subset of equities, you're trying to balance sort of risk within equities by having a, a diversified portfolio of equities. I think you're waiting towards value rather than growth. And then you're thinking, you know, of adding commodities as well, adding things like gold, changing the, the structure. And the amount of your portfolio in, that you have in bonds is not zero, but it's not, you know, it's it's not sort of forty percent anymore. It's it's massively reduced compared to that. So, in summary, it sounds like that the future, kind of the the big risk out there is not that the world's going to end, etc., but actually that the framework has shifted. It is transitioning to a new framework, and if we just kind of hold on to the old framework as our comfort blanket, we're going to lose out. And therefore, the key thing for investors here is that we have to recalibrate. We have to recalibrate this new framework. We have to realise it's a volatile GDP inflation framework, but actually it's a framework in which um, we just have a lot more diversity and dispersion of opportunity, but we perhaps have to be a little bit more active in how we manage our own wealth now going forward, because before it was a one trick pony with a couple of bells and whistles going forwards, there's going to be lots and lots of different ponies that we've got to look at. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that it is quite subtle. So I think we're talking about a subtly different uh, regime, uh, particularly in terms of macroeconomics. And I think, you know, short term, it's all about volatility. It's all about distortions. It's all about recession risk. It's all about the sort of flipping of the pendulum between recession and, and you know, no landing scenarios. Um, but when you look beyond that, I think we will see that something subtly different has actually emerged from all of this. And ultimately, you know, it, it's that super cycle and it's about the balance of power between labor and capital. And so, you know, for capital, it's going to be harder to eke out returns and you're going to have to work harder. For labor, you know, for the real economy, for wages, for inequality, I think we're looking at something stronger. And you know, it's. I think you have to take. You'd have to have sort of quite a myopic view to think that's sort of net bad for the world. I think that you know this is this is it's a different world, but it's one that there's going to be plenty of opportunities in. It's just not going to be you know put your money into U.S. fangs and feel like a genius. It's going to require a bit more effort. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. I mean, I'm not supposed to. I'm not sure we're supposed to end on a on a positive note, but <laughs> let's do that because that's great. Um, but thank you. No, that, that was really good. Um, you know. It's kind of a simple concept, but it's it's a great concept. Thanks very much for your time. Um, very clear. And hopefully you're right. This is just a, a transition which we can all be participants in. No worries. Good to talk to you. It probably comes as no surprise that for me, the framework is one of the most important things that we can all look at when it comes to investing. A trade idea is all well and good, but it's only good for a small number of people, whereas an investment framework is valuable to everybody from day traders through to long-term investors. And what Dario was talking about was how we are transitioning away from that 40-year period of moderation and ever-decreasing yields, and at the end, that shift into duration stocks, basically technology. And now we're shifting into a new regime where we can expect a higher degree of volatility, both in inflation, in macro data, particularly GDP, and therefore in risk assets. The risks going forward is that we don't want to change or we don't change quickly enough from the old regime. The opportunity is that this re new regime has a lot of dispersion, a lot of diversity. And for those who are willing to be a little bit more active in how they look after their portfolios, actually, this could be a period of opportunity for us all. But it won't be simple because it's going to be moving very, very quickly. It's going to have its ups, its downs. 
And maybe if you're on the buy and hold strategy in equities, you might find that after 10 years, it's gone nowhere. But being active gives us an edge and gives us an opportunity to make our portfolios work for us over a long period of time by being in and out and watching it throughout. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.